Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. For whatever reason, my voice today has decided to crack all over the place as if I am a prepubescent boy and not the somewhat mature, not at all polished, 20-something-year-old woman that I am. So if you hear it making weird noises and jumping between pitches and timbers, that is why, and I apologize in advance. I don't know why my vocal cords have decided to betray me like they are. I'm not sick. I'm not dying. It's just my voice deciding to be the worst. And yes, I am drinking copious amounts of tea as I'm recording this in an attempt to lubricate my vocal cords, which is a hideous image, I know. Let's just push past it. And as always, I'm hoping that all of my listeners are doing their best in our brave new world of coronavirus. I hope everyone is staying healthy, safe, sane, as financially stable as possible. For me, I am in about week seven or eight-ish of sheltering in place, social isolation. Honestly, I've kind of lost track of how long it's been, sort of using what week of the quarter I'm in, but even that's kind of not accurate because spring break happened. It doesn't matter. This is our world now. Let's do the best we can. And one last thing before I dive into the study guide for this week. I forget if I mentioned it in my last episode, but I officially turned in my master's thesis. Hooray! I'm free of that weight over my shoulder. I still have about a month left of virtual classes before my virtual graduation, and then I will officially be a master's of the arts. Huzzah! But yay, that's done. And one final thing, because I did massively fuck up last week, I know very aware that there were multiple times in my Madame de Montenon episode where I said Affinez, where I meant to say Francoise. I'm aware. I'm sorry. French names happen. It's my fault. I'm the worst. All that out of the way, let's move on to today's study guide subject, Lieselot, the sister-in-law of Louis Fourteenth. Well, Lieselot, never ruled any countries and definitely is overlooked in German history, European history, French history. She, much like her aunt, Sophia of Hanover, is one of those women in 17th century European history who fascinates me because not only did she have a cultural impact, she definitely had a political impact on things going on around her. She was responsible for a pretty important dynasty, and she was just a really interesting woman. Her study guide involves an aggressively unsuitable husband, some messy mistresses, a lot of letters, and a near escape from a convent. Let's begin. Lieselot was born May 27, 1652, in Heidelberg Castle in Heidelberg, 
in modern-day southwest Germany. Her birth name was Elizabeth Charlotte of the Palatinate, but all of her contemporaries called her Lieselot as a nickname. She's known to history as Lieselot. I will be calling her Lieselot because it's a lot easier to say than Elizabeth Charlotte every single time. Her parents were Charles I Louis, the Elector of the Palatinate. You might also see him referred to as Karl I Ludwig, which was his German name, but in most English writing, he is referred to as Charles I Louis, so that's what I will be calling him, and his wife, Charlotte of Hesse Castle. She was the second of her parents' three children. She had two brothers, one of whom would die in infancy. Lieselot's parents had a famously unhappy marriage. Charlotte was not happy to marry Charles. She felt like he wasn't high-ranking enough for her, even though he was the elector of one of the larger principalities in the Holy Roman Empire, and Charles was in love with one of Charlotte's ladies-in-waiting, all of which I covered way back when in the Sophia of Hanover episode. Growing up in Heidelberg, Lieselot had the reputation for being a bit of a tomboy. As a toddler, she had an interest in playing with toy swords and had a reputation for liking to jump off of high surfaces in order to prove that she was a boy. When Lieselot was five, her family sent her to live in Hanover with her aunt, Sophia of Hanover, because of all the drama going on between her parents. While she was away in Hanover, her father declared himself divorced and promptly married the lady-in-waiting that he was in love with, which was all very romantic, but was more than a little questionable, and which I covered way back in the Sophia of Hanover episode. Despite all the family drama, Lieselot loved her time in Hanover, especially her time with Sophia, because as it turned out, Sophia of Hanover was extremely competent and was probably the first adult in Lieselot's life who treated her well. During her time in Hanover, Lieselot got the reputation for being curious and slightly more important for later on in life for being extremely frank about how she felt about things. While she was in Hanover, she was physically present when the future George I of England was born and physically heard the childbirth process, which really freaked out the young Lieselot, and I think that would freak anyone out. Famously, during her time in Hanover, Lieselot got a visit, Maria Henretta, Charles I of England's daughter and the mother of future King of England, William III. She straight up asked, who was the lady with the big nose? And William was like, oh yeah, that's my mom. And all the other nobles present found her comments about Maria Henretta extremely funny because she was not exactly the most popular woman at court. However, in 1663, when Lieselot was 11, she had to move back to Heidelberg, where all the family drama had mostly settled down and began living with her father, her new stepmother, and her new half-siblings. She did end up having 13 half-siblings, 
because how it turned out, Charles won Louis really did like to get down, but only one of her half-siblings would actually survive both to adulthood and have children. For a bit, it did look like the teenage Lieselot would marry her cousin, the future William III of England. He was only two years older than her. He also was a Protestant. However, that did not pan out because of various political concerns, aka France wanted to have more influence within the Holy Roman Empire in order to counter the rising power of the Austrian Habsburgs, and the best way to do that was to form an alliance with the Protestant Palatinate. So, Louis XIV was all about that. Charles I Louis agreed to form that alliance with Louis XIV, and the easiest way to form that alliance was to marry his oldest daughter, Lieselot, to Louis XIV's younger brother. Realistically, this was the best match that Lieselot could have been given since she was the younger daughter of a lesser prince. Charles I Louis also probably had agreed to this marriage in order to prevent France from possibly invading the Palatinate. Despite the fact that she was engaged to the Catholic brother of the Catholic King of France, Lieselot would always maintain a soft spot for William III. She famously said that she would want him as a son-in-law, and she was famously annoyed when, in the 1690s, James II, who by then was in exile in France, didn't let the French court wear mourning after Mary II of England, his daughter, died. After all the marriage drama, in 1671, she was officially chosen to marry Philippe I, the Duke of Orleans, and the younger brother of Louis XIV. So let's quickly talk about Philippe. Philippe was born in September 1640 and was the second son of Louis XIII and Anne of Austria. Apparently, as a wee babe, Anne of Austria had really liked to dress Philippe in super feminine clothing, and this was a habit he carried in to his adulthood. As a grown-up, he was known for wearing crazy over-the-top clothes and possibly even cross-dressing. At the very least, he was at the vi- he was bisexual and had a lot of male favorites and lovers. His main lover was the very handsome and extremely cunning Chevalier de Lorraine. By the time Lieselot had gotten engaged to Philippe, Lorraine had kind of fallen from grace because he had publicly criticized Louis XIV, which was a big no-no within the French court. Philippe had also been married before his marriage to Lieselot. His first wife had been Henrietta Anne, the sister of King Charles II of England, and Charles II was Lieselot's father's cousin, because as we've established, every royal in European history is fucking interrelated. But then, in 
1670, Henrietta Anne had died unexpectedly, aka had possibly been poisoned by the Chevalier de Lorraine, but her death technically remained unresolved, and more importantly, Henriette and Philippe hadn't had any sons, which meant there were no heirs, which was why it was such a big deal that Philippe and Lieselot got married. Lieselot married Philippe on November 16th, 1671, via proxy, because remember, she was still in the Palatinate, and he was in France, and why not have two people stand in for the bride and groom so you can at least get all the paperwork done? The two did marry in person several weeks later. At the time of the wedding, Lieselot was 19, and her husband was 31. Shockingly, Lieselot and Philippe did not have the greatest marriage. First of all, we have the whole Philippe being gay thing. He literally had to pray and wear rosaries in order to get himself able to have sex with her. He also had the not-so-nice habit of spending a lot of her mutual money to give presents to his various lovers, which Lieselot was not the biggest fan of. It's one thing for your husband to be blatantly cheating on you, but it's quite another for him to be spending all of your money in the process of said cheating. And then there is the fact that in order to marry Philippe, Lieselot had to convert to Catholicism. Lieselot's family was famous for being Protestant. After all, she was descended from the Winter King and the Winter Queen, who had been forced to flee from their throne because they were so staunchly Protestant. Even though Lazelot did convert to Catholicism, she would never identify as a Catholic. Lazelot also did not enjoy the French court at Versailles. As we've established, the court at Versailles was super extra and over the top because it's Louis XIV. He never met a mistress and a bit of intrigue that he didn't love. Lieselot, meanwhile, didn't fit in because she was extremely German. She would always speak French with a very strong accent and spell things the German way. Within the court, she was mocked for liking German food, such as beer and sausage, and she hated dancing, which by then was very popular in France. As She also constantly insulted France, the French way of doing things, and would say that everything German was better. In her memoirs, she wrote, quote, I never had anything like French manners, and I never could assume them, because I always considered it an honor to be born a German, and always cherished the maxims of my own country, which are seldom in favor here. And to make matters even worse, Lieselot had a reputation for, well, being ugly. She was very tall, a little bit on the rounder side, and had fairly dark skin for the time period because she enjoyed going out and hunting 
And while she was out hunting, she didn't really care about wearing stupid giant hats in order to block out the signs. In her memoirs, she wrote, quote, I am unquestionably very ugly. I have no features. My eyes are small. My nose is short and thick. My lips long and flat. Hands more ugly than mine are perhaps are not perhaps to be found on the whole globe. To which I say, lose a lot. Get some self-esteem, girl. You are fantastic. Looks are not everything. You are hilarious. But yeah, everyone at court mocked her for her appearance. Despite the fact that Lizalot didn't really fit in and her husband wasn't into her, there was one thing that Lizalot had going for her. She was extremely fertile, especially compared to Philippe's first and now dead wife. In 1673, Lizalot gave birth to her first son, Alexander Louis. Tragically, Alexander Louis did die in 1676, and she was completely heartbroken with his death, writing in her memoirs, quote, The more I think of this, the more wretched I become. I am now quite alone in my grief. For Monsieur, her husband, started last Thursday with the king to join the army. I fear that all this will injure the child I am awaiting. I do not think that grief can kill. Were it so, I should certainly have died before now. I cannot describe to you the terrible sufferings I have endured. But the year after Alexander Louis was born, Lieselot popped out another son, this time named Philippe after her husband. And unlike her first son, Philippe, her second son, would survive and would actually live a really long time. He would replace his father as the Duke of Orleans in 1701 and would end up serving as the regent for Louis XV from 1715 to 1723. Lisa would also give birth to a daughter, Elizabeth Charlotte, and Elizabeth Charlotte would end up marrying Leopold, the Duke of Lorraine, and Elizabeth Charlotte's granddaughter would be a young Austrian princess whose name just so happens to be Marie Antoinette, who definitely didn't play any role in French history whatsoever. However, after Elizabeth Charlotte's birth, the relationship between Lieselot and Philippe started to fall apart. The two began sleeping in completely different rooms that were fairly far apart. Lieselot wrote in her memoirs that this decision to keep separate bedrooms was because she didn't want to have any more children, she didn't particularly like the childbirth process, and poor Philippe was a really light sleeper, sharing a bed just wasn't comfortable for either of them. But girl, we know your husband, he gay. In addition to raising her three children, well, soon to be two children, with Philippe, Lieselot also raised Philippe's two daughters from his first marriage. She quickly got the reputation for being a really good mother and was extremely close to both of her children and her two stepchildren. 
despite the utter trauma of being forced to watch Sophia of Hanover give birth as a young child, motherhood really suited Lieselot. Also, after she stopped her sexual relationships with her homosexual husband, Lieselot started writing letters, especially to her beloved aunt, Sophia of Hanover. And I cannot begin to emphasize how many letters Lieselot wrote. She wrote over 90,000 letters about her life at the court of Louis XIV. Most of her letters are pretty mocking about, well, everything. And if you ever have the chance to read excerpts of Lieselot's letters, I highly recommend doing so. A lot of them are in the public domain. Quite a few have been translated. They're extremely funny, super readable, and a lot of her mockery is aimed at the general court life and especially aimed at Louis's mistresses. She's super mean towards them. She calls most of them old hussies and the devils, none of which are particularly true because Louis was not exactly choosing hideous old women to sleep with, as we've established in past study guides. Frankly, Lieselot operated in kind of a weird position within the court of Versailles. Technically, she was one of the highest drinking women at Versailles after Louis's wife, Maria Theresa, and the wives of any sons that Louis may have. But at the same time, Louis's mistresses technically outrank her, which Lieselot absolutely hates, possibly because of her childhood experience with her father and his messy love life. Despite this, however, Lieselot does have a genuinely great relationship with Louis. Even though she's convinced that he has terrible taste in women, the two get along really well. They seem to share a pretty similar sense of humor. Probably this is helped by the fact that Louis is not attracted to her in any way, shape, or form, so the two are just able to purely be friends. Despite this friendship, though, Louis keeps turning Lieselot down whenever she asks if she can leave the court and go live with one of her aunts, Louise Hollandine, who lives at a convent, because, hey, her relationship with her husband is done so. She's done her job of providing him with an heir and an extra child. She doesn't like Versailles that much. Can she peace out now? And Louis like, yeah, no. So that's one little ring cloud in her life. The other ring cloud is that Lieselot has an absolutely terrible relationship with Louis's mistresses, especially Madame de Montemon, who, as we all know by now, will eventually become Louis's second wife. Lieselot is going to blame Madame de Montemon whenever anything bad happens in her life, such as any time one of her ladies of waiting gets moved into a different position. For example, when Lieselot's relationship with the wife 
of Louis XIV's son takes a downturn, she blames Madame de Maintenon. When Louis-Lot gets sick, it's somehow Madame de Maintenon's fault. In her memoirs on the Madame de Maintenon, Louis-Lot writes, The devil in hell cannot be worse than she has been. Her ambition has flung all France into wretchedness. Which, as we established in last week's study guide, is kind of unfair. The Madame de Maintenon really did try to separate her own life from politics and did a pretty good job of it. By the 1680s, Lislaud and Louis do start to have a bit of a falling out. Even though Louis does love Lislaud's sense of humor, he does start to feel like she isn't quite refined enough and that she's allowing the children she's supposed to be raising behave a little bit too badly. And Lislaud is absolutely furious about the entire thing. In 1692, there's another major falling out between Louis and Lizalot because Louis decides that her son, Philippe, is going to marry one of Louis's illegitimate daughters by his mistress, the, de the Madame de Montespan, Francois-Marie de Blanc. This marriage has been organized by Lizalot's favorite frenemy, the Madame de Montenon. When Lizalot finds out about the marriage, she is so angry that she smacks her son across the face and refuses to acknowledge Louis, which is a big yikes. However, Lizalot does eventually come around to this marriage, by which I mean she does feel a little bit bad for Francois-Marie, because as it turns out, Philippe is going to constantly cheat on her and give away most of her dowry to his mistresses. However, Lizalot does remain a petty bitch and refuses to pay attention to her grandchildren that result from this relationship. While all this is going on, Lizalot is getting pulled more into the political sphere, whether she likes it or not. Basically, by the late 1680s, France under Louis XIV is in great shape. Things are going amazingly. But Louis XIV, greedy little bitch that he is, wants to extend his influence even further. Specifically in the Holy Roman Empire to counter the Austrian Habsburgs because there is uncertainty over who will inherit the throne of Spain after Charles II dies, which I touched on in the Maria Theresa study guide, to deal with the growing French influence in the Holy Roman Empire, Leopold I of Austria slash of the Holy Roman Empire, because the two are vaguely interconnected but not really, created the League of Augsburg, which included major electors within the Holy Roman Empire, such as Bavaria, Saxony, a bunch of smaller kingdoms, and the Palatinate, aka the kingdom that Lizalot's father ruled over. By 1688, France did have the strongest army in all of Europe. The next two strongest armies were England and the Dutch Republic, 
but the Glorious Revolution was a thing that was happening in 1688, aka, see my master's thesis. So England and the Dutch Republic were a little bit busy, slash unable to fight in a European land war. In the fall of 1688, the Austrian Empire finally beat back the Ottoman Empire, because that also was a thing that was happening, which is a huge win for Austria and Leopold, but it also meant that Leopold was a teeny bit distracted from stuff going on within the Holy Roman Empire. Taking advantage of this distraction, Louis XIV sent French troops to the Rhineland, specifically the Palatinate. He said that he was doing this to protect Lieselot's inheritance there after the death of her brother, the current elector of the Palatinate, who had died back in 1685. Lieselot was like, wait, what? This is news to me, and was especially not thrilled about this turn of events. She wrote that her name is being used for the ruin of my homeland. She was especially worried that the Palatinate, specifically her father's legacy, was going to be used by Louis to promote French interest. As a result, she was going to develop a very serious rivalry with Louis's Secretary of State, Louvois. And the rest of Europe also wasn't thrilled by what Louis was doing. It was seen as a pretty major overstep of Louis's authority. By January 1689, what remaining tensions between England and the Dutch Republic existed were over because the Glorious Revolution was over. William and Mary were on the throne of England, so they were able to start paying attention to Louis. In May 1689, the United Provinces, England, and the Holy Roman Empire joined up against Louis in what was known as the Treaty of Vienna, and they soon were joined by Spain, Saxony, and Bavaria. This leads to an extremely long war for France. And as it turns out, this war isn't going to go super great for the French. Louis isn't going to see a ton of victories and is going to have to deal with a lot of sieges in what will be known as the Nine Years' War. Most of the fighting will end up in modern-day Belgium and Luxembourg, as well as bits of the Netherlands, and the French Navy will be utterly crushed at a battle at La Hogue. The Nine Years' War will end in 1697 with what is known as the Treaty of Reitswick. The treaty doesn't really do all that much. It did not deal with the growing tension between France and the Austrian Habsburgs or answer the question of who will get the throne of Spain once Charles II died. But it did set up the growing English-French rivalry and showed that France and Louis could potentially be stopped if not totally defeated by a strong European alliance. While Lieselot was obviously not thrilled about the Nine Years' War, once it was done in 1698, she turned her attention 
to setting up the marriage of her daughter, Elizabeth Charlotte. She really, really wanted her daughter to marry a king. And now her old childhood friend, William III, was single thanks to the tragic premature death of Mary II of England. Lisbeth really did want Elizabeth Charlotte to marry William III, but obviously that didn't happen because of William III's religion and the growing rivalry between England and France. And as part of the Treaty of Redswick, France needed to cement a friendship with the territory of Lorraine, and Elizabeth ended up marrying Leopold of Lorraine. The marriage was decently successful in that she had 13 children, five of whom would make it to adulthood, one of whom would end up being the father of Marie Antoinette. So that's not too shabby. The next big milestone in Lisbeth's death occurred in 1701, when her not-so-beloved husband, Philippe, died at their shared estate of the Chateau Saint Cloud. At the time of Philippe's death, he and Louis had not been getting along super great, which was not good for Lieselot. Lieselot was very afraid that because Louis hadn't been the biggest fan of her husband at the time of his death, he would send her to a Catholic convent, which technically was part of her marriage treaty, and Lieselot was still pretty Protestant. She literally would fall asleep if she had to sit through a mass for more than 15 minutes. Ultimately, Lieselot did not have to go to a convent. Instead, Louis forced her to publicly apologize to Madame de Martinon and promise that she would be nicer to her moving forward. Lieselot was obviously not too thrilled about this, but it was better than being stuck in a convent. After the death of Philippe, Lieselot took a little bit of revenge by burning most of his letters from his various male lovers and celebrated by sneaking out to the theater, even though she was technically supposed to be in deep mourning for her husband. After Philippe's death, she became a major fan of the theater and started to write lots of reviews for various plays by Moliere in her letters. After Philippe's death, Louis allowed her to keep all of her various fancy court apartments. However, despite this generosity, Lieselot decided to spend most of the rest of her life at the Chateau Saint Cloud, her and Philippe's main estate, and the Grand Trianon, avoiding Versailles as much as she could. She also got to keep all of her titles and inherited quite a bit of money from her husband, who was unknown who was known for amassing tons of wealth. She also got a pretty large inheritance from the king, who did like her despite all of her snark. Then, in 1715, Louis XIV died. The throne went to his grandson, Louis XV, who at the time was only five and aggressively needed a regent. Technically, one of Louis XIV's illegitimate children was supposed to be the regent, but Lieselot's son, Philippe, the now Duc d'Orléans, stepped in. He convinced the Paris Parliament, basically the law court of Paris, to make him the regent instead. It 
worked. So, after 1715, Lieselot was the mother of the regent, which meant that she was essentially the highest-ranked woman in Versailles. She loved having the power, but she still thought that Versailles was way too much and continued to criticize it in all of her letters, writing, Young men, at the epoch in which we live, have but two objects in view, debauchery and lucre, the absorption of their minds on money-getting, no matter by what means, makes them dull and disagreeable. In order to be agreeable, people must have their minds free of care and also have the wish to give themselves up to amusement and decent company, but these are things that are very far away from us nowadays. Lieselot did use some of her power as the regent's mother. She convinced her son to treat Protestant dissenters within France somewhat kindly, which was a huge deal, because technically Catholicism was the only recognized religion in France since Louis XIV had revoked the Edict of Nantes way back in 1685. However, overall, she wasn't all that interested in getting involved in various political affairs of the time. Lieselot ended up dying on December 20th, 1722, in her chateau, Chateau Saint-Cloud, of a stroke. She was 70 at the time of her death, and like so many other members of the French royal family, she was buried in the Basilica of Saint-Denis in Paris. Even after her death, Lieselot's legacy lived on. She and her not-so-loved husband, Philippe, did found the House of Orléans, and one of their descendants, Louis-Philippe, did serve as the King of France between 1830 and 1848. So, not so shabby, Lisa Lot. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's quickly recap the life of Lisa Lot, the Madame Palatinate, a fun little gossiper who did cause quite a little bit of trouble during her time at Versailles. Lieselot was born in 1652 in the Palatinate. Her father, Charles I Louis, was the elector of the Palatinate. Growing up, her parents did not exactly have the happiest of marriages, so Lieselot was sent as a young child to live in Hanover with her beloved aunt, Sophia of Hanover, until she was 11, and she was sent back to live with her father and his new, possibly bigamous wife, in the Palatinate. Growing up, Lieselot had a reputation for being very inquisitive and very, very frank. Despite wanting to marry her beloved cousin, the future William III of England, Lieselot instead married the younger brother of Louis XIV in order to shore up an alliance between the Palatinate and France, slash to ensure that France didn't, you know, invade the Palatinate. However, the marriage between Lieselot and Philippe wasn't exactly great. For one thing, Lieselot didn't fit in all that well in the French court of Versailles, and more importantly, Philippe was aggressively homosexual. Lieselot did manage to squeeze out three children, two boys and a girl. One of her sons did die, but the other two children did survive before she and Philippe decided that, yeah, 
they were not going to continue their relationship and ended anything sexual that might have existed between them. However, despite this, Lancelot did have a great friendship with her brother-in-law, Louis XIV, even though she absolutely hated every single mistress he ever had, especially his mistress, the Madame de Matinon, who would eventually become his second wife, which definitely wasn't awkward at all. After Lancelot ended the physical relationship with her husband, she took up letter writing and would write almost a hundred thousand extremely sassy and very insightful letters to various friends and family, especially her aunt, Sophia of Hanover, about life at Versailles. Throughout the 1680s and 1690s, Lancelot and Louis did have a series of falling outs. Two big ones were over the fact that he made her oldest son marry one of his illegitimate daughters, which was kind of a slap in the face. And then there is the fact that Louis decided to invade Lancelot's home country of the Palatinate in order to protect his claims there, aka to expand his power in the Holy Roman Empire, which led to the Nine Years' War, which ended up being a whole giant mess for France. Basically, the only good that came out of the Nine Years' War for Lancelot is it did lead to the marriage of her beloved daughter, Elizabeth Charlotte, to Leopold of Lorraine. In 1701, Lancelot's not-so-loved husband, Philippe, died of a stroke. Lancelot managed to inherit all of his land and all of his money, which was pretty sizable, settled down in Philippe's main chateau, the Chateau Saint-Cloud, and lived a pretty contented life of writing sassy letters and getting decently into theater criticism. Then, in 1715, Louis XIV died, and Lancelot's son became the regent of France. As the mother of the regent, Lancelot was suddenly one of the most powerful women in France. Well, she stayed mostly out of politics, she used her connections to, one, keep criticizing the court of Versailles, and two, ensure that her fellow Protestants did get treated pretty well. Lancelot finally died in December 1722 at the age of 70. Not too shabby for a woman who was constantly being mocked for her appearance and who had started out life as a lesser German princess. You go, Lieselot. What I really appreciate about Lieselot is, one, her letters are so much fun to read. They're super frank, super honest. She seems like a woman who would just be really enjoyable to hang out with and talk. She'd be really honest, just telling it like it is. And two, while she never had a ton of power, you can still see the impact she had. People were going to war, quote-unquote, on her behalf, and really important people like Louis XIV did genuinely care about what she thought. So yeah, I definitely have a soft spot for Lancelot. I do think there needs to be more research done about her. Will I be the one doing that research? Probably not, because I cannot read German yet, and I still have so much work to do about my little 
corner of the glorious revolution in women in print culture. But if anyone's looking for a topic for like master's theses, Lisa Lott exists. Someone write about her. That'd make me so happy. Most of my research for today's study guide comes from Antonia Fraser's Love and Louis XIV, The Women in the Life of the Sun King, Lisa Lott's own memoirs, The Correspondence of Madame, Princess Palatinate, Mother of the Regent, and Susan Flancer's article on Lisa Lott for the website Unofficial Royalty. As always, you can find a full bibliography as well as relevant images on the website sagirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the study guide at sadgirlstudyguides.com. Next week, I will be tackling Marie Lachensa, the wife of Louis XV, because as it turned out, I lied. This is not just going to be about the ladies of Louis XIV. I'm also going to be talking about the ladies of Louis XV. I know, I'm a terrible human being. This week, I'm also going to be releasing a tangent cast about the tragic life and death of Philippe d'Orléans' first wife before Lot, Henriette Anne. You can find that at the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. I know I've mentioned this before, but because of coronavirus and the fact that some people are in a little bit more of a financially precarious position, I'm making the tangent cast available starting at the $1 per month level. So if you're interested, you can visit the Patreon and join if that is too much and you're still interested in accessing the tangent cast. You can email the show at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com and we can work something out. And as always, if you want to reach the podcast on social media, there's the Twitter at sadgirlstudypod and the Instagram at sadgirlstudy. As always, the best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And please let me know how I'm doing. Read or review. Or else, I'll be sad. Thanks!